Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 6 to 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said these things, they were looking on, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were still gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men by two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. It's uh, interesting the things that shape our lives. My parents uh, were, my parents, I almost said were, they're still alive, are baby boomers. And um, so the, the big pivotal thing that they remember as kids growing up is the Kennedy assassination. For me, uh, 12-year-old Scott was sitting in his classroom on January 28, 1986, and was watching the shuttle Challenger lift off. Uh, this was one of many launches that had happened for the space shuttle program under NASA. This launch was going to be different, though, because instead of having a crew of all astronauts, NASA was sending up an, an ordinary citizen. I know that's pretty commonplace today. I mean, shoot, they just, uh, they just sent William Shatner back to space recently. Did you see that? I mean, he's already been on the five-year mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out. You, okay. Anyway, they sent him back to space recently. But this was new. This was new. They were going to send up a teacher by the name of Krista McAuliffe, who was uh, from New Hampshire. And she was going to teach lessons to school children from outer space. The idea of sending a normal person, a normal citizen into space was new and garnered great attention. And so they took one of those television sets, you know, the kind that weigh about 500 pounds with a deep picture tube, set it on a cart, and it was so top heavy they had to strap it down, and then they rolled it into our classroom and plugged it in. We're going to watch the Challenger go up uh, on that day in my school. However, seconds into launch, something unusual appeared for a few brief seconds, flame shooting out the right side, or flame shooting out the side of the right-hand solid rocket booster. You can see that little plume of, of fire up on the screen. And this was not good because adjacent to the rocket boosters was what amounted to be a tank filled with liquid explosives. It's rocket fuel. Unknown to the public at the time, NASA, along with its contractor, uh, Morton Thiokol, had uh, been deliberating and debating whether to launch that morning because it was an unusually cold morning in, in Florida, 29 degrees, that's, that's down there. And, and this was outside of the tested parameters, the tested functionality of the O-rings on the solid rocket boosters, the, the things that sealed the, the joints of the sections of the booster as they were transported to the site. 
The result was that one set of O-rings failed to seal during launch, and the flame shot out of the, of the side of the right-hand booster, and that resulted in a, a catastrophic failure. This is the image that's burned into my head. The catastrophic failure of the space shuttle Challenger. In the aftermath, there were speeches and memorials and a massive investigation. NASA shut down the shuttle program for two years. And the question that the investigators had to wrestle with was, what was the primary focus of NASA at the time? Was it the launch window, or was it crew safety? Those are both priorities. You want to, you know, you have a space shuttle sitting there on the ground, you want to launch it, but uh, you also have a competing priority of crew safety. Was it the urgency to make the launch schedule that drove them to look past the fact that the engineers were saying in no uncertain terms, we simply haven't tested these things at this temperature range that drove them to launch anyway, assuming that everything would be okay as, they, as things had been okay in the past? Anyway, the decision to launch that way cost the lives of seven including the teacher from New Hampshire. It was a very costly reprioritization. We're at the beginning uh, today in the book of Acts. Pastor Brad opened up the book of Acts for us last week, and I appreciate him doing that. But I just want to say from the very onset, we are going to be challenged by this book. We are going to be challenged. And today, the specific question that we're dealing with is one that the, a similar question that the NASA folks had to deal with, one of priority. The big question is this, as followers of Jesus Christ, what should be our primary area of focus? What should our primary area of focus be? There's a massive failure to understand the answer to this question in the church today, I believe. For some churches, the focus can be on the transformation of this culture right here, right now, into something that resembles a Christian kingdom. For others, the focus, <clears throat> the focus is on a kingdom that is yet to come. And so we're going to get into this text today and see what God has to say about how we should think about these priorities. The first thing I want to share with you is this, is we typically focus on earthly things. We typically focus on earthly things. Look at, the, look at verse 6. When they gathered around him, they are the disciples, Jesus' disciples. When they gathered around him, Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking that question. Are you going to restore the kingdom? Now, before we get too far down this road, let's, let's, uh, talk about, let's talk about kingdoms in general before we go too far. What does it take? What is it to require to have a kingdom? By the way, the, the, the phrase kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is mentioned all over the place in the New Testament. And um, if I'm honest with you, uh, which I like to be, um, uh, I try to be all the time, um, then I, I'm going to tell you this. Books that I've read on the kingdom of God or chapters within books that I've read on the kingdom of God 
have often served to confuse me more than help me. Has anybody else had that experience? In other words, it's kind of a nebulous thing that we talk about the kingdom of God. So I found a book uh, by Alva J. McLean. Uh, this is the industry standard, The Greatness of the Kingdom. Uh, I warn you, it's a dense read. It's not a, it's not a Saturday afternoon page turner. Uh, but if you can get through it, you'll learn a lot about this concept of the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So in that book, McLean uh, says that in order to have a kingdom, you have to have a ruler, and that ruler has to have adequate authority and power. You also have to have a realm with subjects. Okay, that makes sense. This is basic stuff. You could probably come up with this on your own. And an actual, the actual exercise of the function of rulership. In other words, there are such a thing as a king or a queen who is a figurehead, and they don't really rule. Uh, so to have a kingdom, you have to have a ruler, but that ruler actually has to be able to exercise the function of rulership. It turns out that <clears throat> kingdom is a huge concept. Uh, there's, a, there's about 150 references in the New Testament alone. That's forgetting about the Old Testament. In the New Testament alone, there's about 150 references to the kingdom. And we need to be very careful to understand this concept accurately or we will go off in the wrong direction. Now, McLean, in his book, he gives all kinds of different viewpoints of the kingdom. I'm going to boil it down to a couple for the sake of us today because they can get pretty uh, complicated. If you, if you understand that we are not now living in the kingdom, that the kingdom is something that's coming. In other words, if you look up on the screen, you can see there is a ruler, his name is Jesus, of the, of the kingdom of heaven. There is a ruler, but, and there are subjects, but, but Jesus isn't here now. He's in heaven, the right hand of the Father, the Bible tells us. Yes, I understand that God is all present, but what I'm saying is he's not, yet, he's not now manifesting himself in physical form on the earth. Uh, he has, and while he has subjects, the, his subjects being every person who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin, those that are walking according to his ways, he does have subjects. Uh, one could argue that there is no realm. In other words, nobody would, nobody would say that this, this earth, no, no outside, nobody outside the church would say that this, this earth is the kingdom of, of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven and that uh, he is not actually exercising function directly like a ruler would on the earth today. So if you see the kingdom as something that's future and coming, and I'm going to argue today that that's the way I see it, the, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, is something that is future and coming, then you will spend your time focused on the mission that Jesus has given us on this earth. And that mission is to make disciples, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And now, making a disciple is more than just leading someone to, the, to faith in Christ, telling them the gospel. That's part of it. But making a disciple, right? Jesus said, uh, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that, that assumes that they've, they've understood the gospel and they've received Christ as their Savior and they've been initiated into the body through baptism. It also means, he also goes on to say, teaching them to observe all things that I have taught you, all the commands that I've given you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, if we understand the kingdom as future and as something that's coming, we will be on mission for Jesus to help folks by 
sharing the gospel, and as they come to trust Jesus as their Savior from sin, which is a, an act of God, uh, then we begin to teach them from God's Word how we are to live according to it. However, if you see the kingdom of heaven, and some do, by the way, I just want to be clear, some do see the kingdom as already here. It's already on the earth. If you, see the, if you view the kingdom of heaven as it's already here, then the temptation would be to spend, for a Christian to spend their time focused on making daily life here as best as it can be by, you know, doing things like clothing the naked, feeding the sick, healing the, uh, you know, feeding the hungry, uh, fighting oppression, clothing the naked, healing the sick. You get the idea. And so uh, both of those things are important. You know, both of those things are important. But the question that we're asking today, like NASA, launch is important. But crew safety is important, and crew safety should come first. What's our priority? What is the priority of the Christian? Is it to make the earth a great place to live, or is it to make disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, this, this question that the disciples ask, it's understandable, right? Because we all want to go back, we all want to go back to the glory days, the golden age, we all have nostalgia, right? Uh, some of you remember better days in the United States when things weren't so bad, and you want to kind of, you'd like it if we could kind of get back to those times. But it had been easy for the disciples to fall into the trap of hearkening back to the good old days of Israel, the glory days, the days of David and Solomon, the kings, when all of Israel's enemies were defeated. When God was manifest, he manifested his presence among them in the temple. And when every Israelite submitted to God in perfect reverence and awe of who he is. Okay, nobody, nobody corrected me there. Did all of the Israelites, even when David was the king or Solomon was the king, did all of the Israelites submit to God out of reverence and awe of who he is? Why? Why? Because sin remained. Because sin remained. It's evident in David's life, King David. So we always have to, we always have to take a little bit of a slap in the face sometimes when we, when we always talk about the old days, the glory days with nostalgia, because even back in the glory days, in the, in the heyday, whatever, there were difficulties. David was a king who committed murder and adultery. Now, he repented, and that's a beautiful thing. Solomon was a king who was probably the wisest man, the richest man who ever lived, and still, towards the end of his life, his priorities to have good relations with foreign wives started to overwhelm his priority to love God with everything that he's got. And so the glory days, eh, maybe they weren't too glorious. And the key... The key, uh, one of the keys to understanding that, as soon as Solomon was off the throne, as soon as he was in the grave, there became a fight, a battle over who was going to take his place. And eventually, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And from there, a hodgepodge of kings, good, some good, some bad, ruled in those nations. Some led the people closer to a relationship with the Lord, and the next king would come in and drag them further away. Some would tear down the worship places of Baal and Ashtoreth, and some would 
get into power and put them right back up. So the glory days were short-lived and didn't last. Eventually, this all came to a head as God kept his promise to punish Israel's sin because eventually the northern kingdom of Israel was scattered by the Assyrians and soon after the southern kingdom of Judah was carried into captivity by Babylon for 70 long years. Now, let's just let's take a, let's all just take a step back from this text just for a minute and let's let's talk about world history. Let's just talk about world history. The longest running empire earthly speaking the longest running empire on the face of this planet, you could argue, is the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire. What do you know about the emperors of the Roman Empire? What were they considered to be? Deity. They were gods, right? In the eyes of the Romans, these emperors were gods. Well, let me tell you about these mighty gods in the Roman Empire. During the Roman Empire, which lasted about a thousand years, about 20% of its 82 different emperors were assassinated while in office. Meaning, there were some folks in the kingdom that didn't like them too much or wanted their position of power or whatever. And so these men were holding office. They were emperor. They were considered by the people to be deity themselves, but somehow they couldn't, they couldn't comprehend that there was an assassination plot coming and once assassinated could not then raise themselves from the dead. Some gods, these are. To be a decent emperor back in the Roman Empire, you had to find the right combination of loving and caring for the people under your leadership while maintaining strict law and order. Long after the Roman Empire had fallen, Niccolo Machiavelli, this guy, you maybe have heard the term Machiavellian. Uh, they talk about it a lot on, on the news channels. That's very Machiavellian. They misuse it most of the time, FYI. Niccolo Machiavelli, not a good guy, born in Italy in 1469, wrote down his observations about world history and his contemporaries. He wrote down his, his observations in an essay that he called The Prince. Not a very long book. It's an easy read. But essentially what he said is that a, a ruler on the earth today needs to use very skillfully two primary tools. And I'm boiling this down quite a bit. Please understand but you need to use two primary tools, fear and generosity. In other words, when you conquer a new territory and it's time to go in there with your people, you go in there and you find all the people that could possibly make trouble and get rid of them. What's that going to make all the people do? They're going to hate your guts. So then what you do is after you've gotten rid of all the possible troublemakers, anybody that could be a challenge to your authority, you come in with cheap grain you build aqueducts, you build roads, you create new economic systems, and you give the people a taste of the good life, and then you know what they do? They obey. You see any uh, comparisons to that today? Probably you do, because Machiavelli is studied in almost all political science courses in this country. You have to be able to use fear and generosity skillfully. Now, 
we can look at that as human beings and we can say, oh, what a terrible thing that is, that that's the tools that have to be used to rule over human beings. But you realize why that is, right? It's because we're sinners. We're sinners. We're not going to submit to authority. We're not going to, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to get on board with what the ruler wants. No, we're going to, we're going to consider the ruler to be wrong, sometimes rightly so, and we're going to try to rebel. And that's exactly what happens in world history over and over and over again. Why? Because men try to build kingdoms of people that don't want to be ruled by them. So they have to rule by force. They have to be very Machiavellian. They have to use fear and they have to use generosity in very skillful, skillful proportions in order to garner compliance. Now, Jesus is being asked a question by the disciples. Are you going to set up the kingdom now? What had they just done to Jesus? What had they just done? Rejected and crucified him. So it wasn't hard to understand. It shouldn't be hard for us to understand why Jesus was not at that time going to establish the kingdom. Instead, he's going to do something different. By the way, this whole Machiavellian thing, this Machiavelli did not inv invent that. Not at all. Uh, God... <laughs> So back in the Old Testament, uh, back in Old Testament Israel, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you can turn there if you want, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, if you remember, Israel went to Samuel and they said, we want a king to rule over us like all the other nations. And remember, God had this conversation with Samuel. Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as their king. And so they're like, give us a king, give us a king. And that's how they got King Saul. But God, before he gave them what they wanted, before he granted them their desire to have a king over them, he said in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. See what the Lord is saying? You take a sinful man and you make him the king over you and pretty soon that power is going to begin to corrupt him and he's going to take and he's going to take and he's going to take and he's going to take. So this is not new. Machiavelli did not, did not invent all this stuff. Some of this stuff comes from the word of God. So we have to wrestle with the question, folks. How do you build a kingdom out of people, out of subjects that don't want to be led? And the answer to that question, because the history of, of humanity 
generally speaking, is that people get into power and then become corrupted, and they try to rule over people with a, a combination of fear and generosity, and then uh, the people rise up against that ruler and depose them, and then put in a new ruler, and the whole cycle starts over again. That's the that's a broad picture of the history of humanity. So the only way to build a kingdom, to truly build a kingdom, is to begin to, to do a work in people to transform them. And that's where we live today, folks. God is transforming us into the image of his son so that when that kingdom comes, when he returns to rule over us, that, that everything t- prophesied in the Old Testament about how God will rule over us and we will be as people and their unity and peace and the lion will lay down with the lamb and all that stuff will come to pass. But it's in the future. It's, it's very much like, uh, I, I say this all the time, maybe get sick of it, high school versus college, Okay. Why do we all hate high school? I hated high school. I spent a good chunk of my time in high school trying to subvert the educational process. Like, how much can I get the teacher off track today so that we don't learn anything, so they can't put it on the test? That was me. I was that guy. But then something funny happened when I got to college, because everybody's got to go to high school, right? It's like a law that we have to go to high school. Now, you can go to homeschool, you can go to private school, but you got to go to high school somewhere. And uh, it's funny, when I got to college, it's funny what happened when I got to pick where I wanted to go and where I got to pick what major I wanted to study. All of a sudden, everything seemed interesting to me. And the students, the other students around me, also picked the college. They also picked a major, and it seemed interesting to them. And so now we're working together to learn the material instead of working against each other to try to subvert the educational process. Why would the disciples settle for an earthly kingdom where Machiavellian kings would need to rule through a combination of fear and generosity when a kingdom established by an all-powerful, self-sacrificing king was offering a kingdom composed of those who would choose to follow him? It's an interesting question. Now again, I want to go back to my first illustration. Launch was a priority. Crew safety for NASA was a priority. But crew safety had to come first in priority. So don't hear me, hear me say that I'm abandoning the United States in this sermon. I'm not. What I am saying is that there's our job as followers of Jesus Christ to make disciples, and there's our, there's our responsibilities as citizens of these United States. And we have to understand our priority. We're not going to change this culture through legislation. James Stalker, uh, uh, James Stalker, a a Presbyterian Scottish pastor who's long dead. I've been collecting some of his old books at used bookstores. I'm a nerd. I'm sorry. But this is what he said in one of his books. This is just a book of essays. And this is an essay called The Religion for Today. Today, T-O hyphen D-A-Y. it's an old book it smells so good it's musty I love it It smells like knowledge (laughs) he says this James Stalker says this we often hear calls for an aggressive Christianity which will go forth with irresistible energy and conquer the world but are you sure 
this is the way to conquer the world? You remember in the fable the contest between the wind and the sun as to which of them would compel the traveler to remove his cloak. The wind blew and blew more and more furiously, furiously, but the traveler only wrapped his garment the more tightly about him. But he took it off at once when the sun brought to bear on him its gentle and genial force. A competent writer describing the improvement in the manners and morality of England at the close of the last century raises the question as to what it was due. In the beginning of the last century, every sixth house, every sixth house in London was a gin shop, and gin drinking infected the population like an epidemic. Dr. Johnson told Boswell that in his native town of Litchfield, every householder went to bed drunk every night and nobody thought the worse of him. Profane swearing was the mark of good breeding. On Sunday, the people gathered for cockfighting and bullbaiting, and even the clergy took place, took part in these cruel sports. Before the century closed, there was a complete revolution in public opinion, and the whole tone of manners was altered. And to what was this change due? These things had not been put down by legislation. Nor did the educated and cultured classes lead the fashion in the direction of better things. No. But the preaching of Whitfield and Wesley raised up all over England a sprinkling of converted men and women living the Christ-like life. Each of these became a kind of mirror in which the age beheld its own hideousness. Each became a little window through which people saw out beyond their own evil customs to a better time. This is what we need. Not so much an aggressive as an attractive religion. Men are not at peace. They are hungry for happiness. They pursue it over sea and land, but they have not found it. If in every Christian they beheld a soul manifestly at peace with itself, filled with a joy unspeakable, which betrayed that it had found the secret of life, we would not need to preach to them and plead with them so much. They would come flocking of their own accord like doves to their windows. James Stalker. Well, the second thing we see in this text, and these next two points go quickly, uh, God wants us to focus on heavenly things. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. By the way, if you search the Bible, the New Testament, Jesus says this over and over again. It's not for you to know. You don't know, the, I don't even know the day or the hour. Only the Father who is in heaven knows. I don't know how that works in the Trinity. It's, it's in, you know, it's, it's incomprehensible to me, but somehow the Father knows, the Son doesn't. But you will receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God wants our focus on heavenly things, not on earthly things, on heavenly things. He's, he's got us focused on the, the kingdom of heaven. And in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says this, Your kingdom come. He's talking to God the Father. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is not here yet. 
It's not here yet. And so we are intentionally being told about the timing. We are intentionally, intentionally not being told about the timing of God's kingdom on earth. By the way, I said this in the first service, I gotta say it again. We are just living in a day and age where it just, it's just like, it's almost like going to the store and getting a gallon of milk that you can find somebody who's predicting the end of, you know, Jesus' return. Some teacher, some guy, woman claiming to be a Christian, mostly on YouTube, that's coming out of the woodwork saying, Jesus is going to return May 27, 2022. You better be ready. You know, this text proves them to be a false teacher, right? Can I get an amen on that? So anybody, if, if I, I mean, who's your favorite pastor, right? I mean, I know it's me. <laughs> but if, if uh, uh, Alistair Begg up in Cleveland, love Alistair Begg, but if Alistair Begg comes out tomorrow and says, God told me the end of you know, Jesus' return is going to be on such and such a day, I've got to say to Alistair Begg, I don't think so, buddy. The Word of God says different. So pay attention to that. When somebody says, I know when Jesus is returning, don't you believe it? But we are intentionally not being told about this. It's a good litmus test for a false teacher. Why? Well, I'm going to tell you why by telling you a story. When I was a kid, uh, my dad didn't do this very often. He did it from time to time. But my dad, uh, I had I'd asked my dad, I kind of scribbled out some plans, and I'd asked my dad to help me build a treehouse in the old weeping willow on the farm. I really wanted a treehouse. I wanted to be able to climb up the tree on some, you know, two-by-fours nailed to the tree, climb up the tree, and have a little place up there of my own. And shockingly, my dad said, yeah, I'll help you with that. We got, we got other things that we've got to do first on the farm, but as soon as we get those things knocked out, we'll do it. Okay. And so for the next three or four days, my dad used one word on me that I hated, and that was the word later. Because as soon as he agreed to do this for me, I, I must have asked him about 450,000 times, Dad, are we going to build a treehouse now? Is it now? Is now the time? We're gonna, I'll go get the wood. We'll get the saw, you know, the nails. And he would say, son, we've got other things to do first later. And it really irked me, too, because I was like, well, later when? Like later this afternoon, later tomorrow? What are we talking about later here? And he's like, we're going to do it. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do it later. Drove me nuts. That's the situation that we're in. Our, our Father has told us, I'm coming. Jesus is returning again. Later. For now, focus on the task at hand. And what is the task at hand? The task at hand is we have, to, we have work to do, and that is to be witnesses. Witnesses of what? Witnesses of Jesus, of his death, of his life, his burial, his resurrection, what the meaning of his resurrection is, what the meaning of his death is. It paid the penalty for our sins. What, it means, what his resurrection means, it means he's, he's the only one true God, the one that defeated death and sin. To teach people his ways, to model his ways through our lives. You know, our lives speak a lot to people. When we live a certain way, our lives uh, you, you know if you know you're doing it right when somebody comes up to you and says maybe they're an unbeliever and says i don't know what you've got in your life but i want to be like you and you say well i'm i'm nothing special i'm trying to be like christ 
We witness through our Christian community, the church, where we care for one another and love one another, and we speak the truth in love, and we, we care about each other's discipleship. We care uh, enough to say something when someone's living in sin. We, we speak the truth in love. And like I said earlier, we, we not only teach, show them the gospel message, but we also, once they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin, we help them to reach spiritual maturity. Now, making disciples does not equal building a kingdom. That's not what we're doing here. We're making disciples of Jesus for that future kingdom that's coming. It's not here yet. So we've got to keep that in mind. We've got to get our priorities straight. Now, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'm about, I'm about to blow your mind a little bit. At least I hope I am. When we, we can be guilty in churches like Delaware Bible Church, I'm not trying to pick on us or anything, but we can be guilty of falling into some traps and here's why I here's some of the traps we can fall into Christians who are of a more charismatic bent Christians who are of more of a charismatic bent will do things to us that seem strange like in their churches they'll try to manifest the gift of tongues they'll try to manifest the gift of healing the gift of casting out demons now um, I'm going to say something and this is just me being a smart aleck and so please forgive me ahead of time. But in the book of Acts, we're going to cover this. There's, I think, Philip. He's doing some ministry over here, and then the Holy Spirit teleports him to a different area of the country to do ministry somewhere else. And isn't it funny that that gift is never manifest in the church? I mean, my name is Scott. I, I mean, the whole beam me up, Scotty, really, that really appeals to me, like, uh, you know, engage the Holy Spirit, and now you're going to Toledo. And so, because of because of our maybe our more charismatic brothers and sisters, assuming that they have a, a good grasp on the gospel and all these things, our, our charismatic brothers and sisters do this, and we want to not kind of be associated with that. We kind of like shut up a little bit about the Holy Spirit, and so here's the mind-blowing part I think we need to stop thinking about the Holy Spirit God the Holy Spirit who is a person as someone who is limited to manifesting tongues teleporting people healing sick casting out demons convicting us of our sin I think we need to stop limiting the Holy Spirit to these things and to understand what this text plainly says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now, what do I mean by that? The power that I'm talking about here is when the Holy Spirit came, they were gathered for Pentecost, people from different language groups coming. What was the goal? The goal was to bear witness. They didn't have the Bible printed. It wasn't even written yet. The New Testament wasn't even written yet. And so what needed to happen to get the word out? People needed to hear it in their own language. And so the, when, they, the, when the apostles opened their mouth 
to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, everybody heard it in their own language because that was the power that was necessary at that time to accomplish the mission. When Philip got teleported from here to there, that was the power necessary at that time to accomplish the mission. And we're in a different stage now than then. We just are. And so the Holy Spirit... I don't, know, the whole, I don't know how God the Holy Spirit is going to manifest himself in your life. All I know is this, is that as you attempt to be witnesses, perhaps God will open doors for you to share the gospel. Perhaps God will convict the person you're sharing with of their sin and open their eyes to the good news of Jesus Christ. Perhaps God will give you increased energy and vigor to, to accomplish the task. And perhaps the Holy Spirit will manifest himself in a way that I don't, that would seem miraculous to us. And so we need to stop limiting our understanding of just the things that occurred in the book of Acts and the things that the, the church, the, our more charismatic brothers and sisters are trying to manifest itself, manifest today and to realize that God is way more powerful than that. So this is a really bad illustration. And so I apologize ahead of time. But I want you to think about the Holy Spirit as like a Swiss army knife, right? Uh, a Swiss Army knife have all these tools that whatever situation you're in, you're supposed to be able to have a tool to whatever, you know, change a engine block in your car. I don't know, whatever. I wouldn't try that. But the point is you have the tool that you need at the time that you need it. And, and the Holy Spirit, you know, I came up with other illustrations, but they were way too nerdy for you. Like in, you know, Star Trek, you got the tricorder, you know, where Spock gets it out and he goes, Sometimes it heals bones. Sometimes it does a body scan. Sometimes it's like detecting life forms. I don't know what the tricorder is. It just does everything, right? This is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us power, gives us what we need when we are doing the mission. That's the, my best understanding of what the Holy Spirit is doing. And in the book of Acts, sometimes the Holy Spirit manifested in tongues. Sometimes the manifested in healing raising the dead, casting out demons, teleportation, and so on and so on and so on. But, but what God has promised us here is that he's going to give us what we need when we need it to accomplish the mission. He's going to empower it. And he's going to do that in Judea. That's, that's where they were locally. Judea and Samaria, that was their region they were in and to the ends of the earth. And by the way, that's the outline, the general outline of the book of Acts. We start, the narrative starts in the city of Jerusalem, then it moves out in Judea and to Samaria. And then by the time you get to the Apostle Paul, he's going around the known world and he's planting churches where? To the ends of the earth. Now, as if, as if this teaching that we've received this morning in this text isn't rich and full enough, and there's a lot of stuff to chew on here, even uh, good stuff. Then we're left in verses 9 through 11, I believe, with the real world example. In other words, God has just told us very clearly, I'm not building the kingdom now. Get your mind off the earthly stuff and start setting your mind on the heavenly stuff. Be my witnesses. I'm going to give you power, and I want you to be my witnesses, and I want you to be my witnesses everywhere. And immediately we get this example. After this, he was taken, he, Jesus, was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. That cloud, I think, represents the Shekinah glory, you know, the Old Testament Shekinah glory. You know, God often manifested, manifested himself as a cloud. Anyway, a cloud hid him from their sight, 
They were looking intently up in the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white, these are probably angels, messengers from God, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why, are you, why do you stand here looking into the sky? You can imagine these 11 guys, you know, or however many there were out there, uh, at least 11. Where is he? Where'd he go? He's over there. No, no, he's not over there. Get your eyes checked. He's over. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So what, what, is the, what do I say when this is a real world example? Well, here's God saying, get your head out of the clouds. Seriously. You've got a job to do on this earth. Now get after it. Get after it. And, and if I could just make a, an observation, I say this a lot, but uh, Christi- Christians, the pitfalls that Christians have fallen into over the span of time have been really two. One is that Christians become all about doing missionary work or doing, uh, doing gospel work, but they never spend much time developing their theology in God's Word. And so they tend to suffer from mission drift, meaning that uh, pretty soon they're doing just they're just doing feeding programs and, and you know doctoring programs, but it's disconnected from the gospel. Not, that's not our mission. Or you get other folks that are that are so fixated on knowledge and theology and stuff, and they're always studying, but they're never doing. That's not right either. The normal Christian life is a life where we. We learn from God's Word, and then we practice God's Word. We learn from God's Word, and we practice God's Word. I'd make a good speed skater, wouldn't I? We learn from God's Word, and then we practice God's Word. And then the last thing we see here is that it's something of just tremendous hope. Tremendous hope. And that is that Jesus will return. These angels, these messengers that appear to these disciples say, this Jesus that just went up into heaven, he's going to come back the same way. We know how he's coming back. He's coming back out, he's descending from the sky. He's coming back someday. But we just, it's later. We just don't know. Could be today. We don't know. We don't know. And so, just as a recap, look at the situation that we're in. The disciples asked, are we to establish the king? You know, is now the time that the kingdom is going to be set up here? Jesus says, no. And I'm not going to tell you when that's going to come. Only the Father knows. Later. Instead, here's what I want you to do. Not only am I going to give you a mission to be my witnesses, and I want you to be my witnesses everywhere, but I'm going to give you power to do it. Folks, when I sit down with my Bible, and, and I know others can attest to this too, when I sit down in my study with my Bible, and I'm straining over a text of Scripture, and God reveals to me, He illuminates the text to my mind, and, and helps it to become real, and helps me to, to understanding you guys, and understanding this text, to figure out the words to speak, to be able to convey it to you, that, I believe, is the Holy Spirit empowering the work. Thank God, because I'm not that profound. When I see someone who is hearing the gospel for the first time and they turn, they repent of their ways and they turn and give their life over to Jesus Christ, that's Holy Spirit power manifesting itself in the church today. Maybe not in the same way as in the book of Acts, but it's, it's, God is alive and well and he is working. 
So we are to focus on making disciples of the king, knowing that he will return at any time. And so there's a sense of urgency. Later, that might cause us to be lazy, but he could come back at any time. That gives us urgency. The big question for today was this. Let me wrap this up. The big question today was, what's our priority? What should our main priority be? And here's, here's what I came up with. As followers of Jesus, our focus should be on making his disciples in preparation for his return when his kingdom will be established. Revelation 20. Man, read Revelation 20. Jesus is going to rule on this earth for a thousand years. And just in case, just in case you don't get it, I think in Revelation 20, he repeats it like five times. He's going to reign for a thousand years, and for a thousand years, he's going to reign. How long will his reign be? A thousand years. Just in case anybody who doesn't believe in the millennial kingdom doesn't get it, he puts it in there like five times. Okay, possible application. Possible application. Here's some things to think about. Where is your focus? Where is your focus? Perhaps your focus is completely on uh, making this world a better place through your work or whatever, and there's nothing wrong with making the world a better place through your work. But your focus, your main focus, your overarching thing needs to be on the mission that God has given us, which is to make disciples. So who are you praying for? Who are you witnessing to? Who are you making plans to share this with? That's a good question to wrestle with. Secondly, we have to understand, we've got to understand that our enemy, would, our enemy, the evil one, would like nothing more than to take us and knock us off the track, right? Get us all wrapped around the axle about what's going on in politics today. Hey, I'll just cut to the chase. Everybody's lying to us. On the right, they're lying. On the left, they're lying. Everybody's lying to us all the time, okay? So spend a little bit less time on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and, and all that stuff, and spend a little bit more time on mission, right? It's good stuff to talk about. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's fun to talk about, but it's not always productive because we don't know what they're, if they're, what they're telling us is true or not. So the enemy would love to sidetrack us and get us all bent up about making the kingdom here, now, by trying to implement legislation to change everything without doing the work of changing hearts and minds by making disciples. And then finally, live confidently, right? Not only has God, I mean, if, have you ever thought about this? God has given you, you, sitting in your chair and me, he's given us a very specific mission and told us, promised us that he would give us power to do it, right? And so, we have what we need to carry out the mission. And so we should do it. I'm going to close today. I, I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to close today with just a couple of passages from Hebrews chapter 12 and 13. Just to put an exclamation point on this sermon. And I'm just going to, I'll read them quickly. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Finally, Hebrews 13, 14 through 16. For here, look at me, here, Ohio, United States, there's no lasting city here. You understand that, right? I don't cherish the thought, and I don't, I don't enjoy telling you that the United States of America may not last till Jesus returns. It may not. I don't, I don't want to say that. But if human history is any indicator, then it may very well pass away. Because right here, we have no lasting city. But we seek a city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not acknowledge, do not neglect, sorry, to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I'm not saying that we should abandon the United States. We should work hard to make the United States good as God defines good. Just got to think about our priorities. Father, thank you for this text of Scripture, so challenging, so rich and full. And uh, as we embark on this study in the book of Acts, I, I pray that we would capture, recapture perhaps, a missionary spirit, a spirit that, that we could become a church, that like the church in Antioch that sent out Paul and Barnabas, that we could become a sending church, a church that effectively ministers in our Jerusalem and in our Judea and Samaria and then sends others out to the ends of the earth for your glory and for your honor in anticipation of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.